And welcome back, pool fans from coast to coast. You are listening to American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again this week. It is June the 16th, 2016. And today's show is brought to you in part by Q Sports International. Creating more choices for more players. Speaking of Q Sports International, you know, here's an early heads up for you. We're just a little more than a month away from the U.S. Open 10-ball and U.S. Open 8-ball competitions coming up at the end of July. So uh, if you are intending to play, you better hurry up. (laughs) You're running out of time. It's going to be a fantastic contest, and we always look forward to it every year. So... Uh, mark it on your calendar. You know, you guys are going to want to watch that stuff and um, if not, participate in it. So, you know, there you go. There's your early warning for the for the week. Um, what's going on uh, tonight as we speak right now? You're, if you're listening to this, it's probably already started. Um, Johnny Archer, Darren Appleton, Justin Bergman, and Andy Quinn are at Teacher's Billiards down there in St. Louis. And... Uh, Appleton and Archer are on a an exhibition tour, uh, an instructional tour, and they decide to go ahead and throw uh, this match in. So uh, it's going to be streamed, uh, pay-per-view. You can check into that at uh, the website on Q2 for more details. Should be a pretty fun match, actually. Um, the VNEA Junior Competition, or their nationals is going on this weekend, as a matter of fact, out in Erie, Pennsylvania getting some good pool in with the juniors and they're having their uh, nationals for the adults out in Vegas right now as we speak. So if that's something you're interested in, you certainly want to support your junior players. And, uh, ooh, another early morning. It's a couple of weeks away, but uh, the Cole Dixon Memorial is coming up. Um, let's see, I want to say that's July the 2nd. Yes, through the 2nd and 3rd. Cole Dixon out at Family Billiards and uh, Family Billiards in San Francisco. That'll be kicking off this next week. And, of course, we have the Atlantic Challenge Cup just a couple of weeks away. That promises to be an exciting matchup. You guys, it's going to be free-streamed. Don't miss it, really. This is the best juniors in the United States versus the best, best juniors from the U.K., just like the Moscone Cup. We want you guys to support TM, Team USA like they were your own son or daughter. You know what I mean? This is good stuff for the kids in the pool. So, yeehaw. Get ready for that. All the rest of the ladies are out in uh, Taiwan at the Amway um, Open. And uh, the men, the international men, are out at uh, the Derna City Classic in the Netherlands. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be some fantastic pool, too. If, if there are streams available for both of those events, so if you want to check into it, the Dern City Classic has their own website, and I believe the Amway Cup does too. So that's all going on or coming up. Lots of great pool. Um, now that school's out, you know, the junior events are cranking up. You got your Atlantic Challenge Cup, the VNEA, uh, VNEA Junior Nationals, the BEF Junior Nationals are coming up also July 13th. So you're going to want to watch that good stuff man and before i get actually we need to congratulate the um, acui collegiate winners for this year's competition 
Um, once again, the Lindenwood team just knocking them out of the park. On the women's side, Brianna Miller of Lindenwood, she came in first. Uh, Taylor Reynolds, second place. And Delilah Fang, she was actually from the University of Wyoming. Congratulations to those three ladies for their collegiate win. And, of course, Mr. Uh, Sharik Syed, um, Tanner Nichols, and Sean Summers. All from Lindenwood. Congratulations for the top three honors for the men's team. That's really good stuff, you guys. Like uh, I mentioned before, the ACUI uh, competition is kind of a big deal in the college circuit. It's been going on since 1937. Good stuff for the college kids, y'all. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, it's going to be a little bit of a short show this week because it is summer and things are a little bit uh, slow on the big national tournament scene. So what we're going to do is we're going to kick off the reading of another book. We're going to uh, go through a couple of chapters at a time. Willie Hoppy's book. It's called 30 Years of Billiards. It was originally published in 1925. And it tells the story about him growing up in the billiard world and some of his adventures. It'll be a good read. Um, we're going to try to get through it, like I said, a couple of chapters at a time. Uh, per week, I should say. So you're going to want to tune in uh, and catch the whole thing. So we're going to start that this week. And we'll be right back after this. <laughs> All right, and we're back, and we're going to get started on a new book. We're going to go through a couple of chapters uh, probably per week. The name of the book is 30 Years of Billiards by Willie Hoppy. It was originally published in 1925. In case you did not know, uh, Willie Hoppy is one of the greatest cueists to ever live. He... Um, was a household name, actually, at the time uh, of his career. There's a note at the beginning of the book that talks about a little bit about his career. I want to read it to you real quick before we get started. It says, In the decade after the first publication of this book, Balkline Billiards was replaced as the game of the great billiard champions by the modern three-cushion game. And Hoppy's extraordinary career entered its second phase. Taking up the modern game, he won his first three-cushion title in 1936. In the Chicago World Tournament of 1940, Hoppy scored his greatest victory, winning the championship by taking, uh, by taking 20 straight games, a new record for tournament play. After 90, 1940, Hoppy won the three-cushion title seven times, his last championship came in San Francisco in 1952, after which he retired from tournament play. He died at the age of 71 of a heart attack in Miami on February 1st, 1959. So anyway, as you can see, uh, his career well documented and his uh, excellence actually at the billiard world is well documented. So this is a book, it talks about his life growing up as the pro and sort of his introduction into the professional world and, and what happened 
uh, from the time that he was born up until the time that the book was published in 1925. Uh, in 1925, his career by no means was actually over. Um, he had about 20 more years left in him that he ended up playing. So this is sort of a good insight into you know, the middle-aged man and the champion that he was. <coughs> Excuse me, it's a great read. Uh, there's not a whole lot of copies of it out there, but they are fairly available if you ever want to pick one up. Okay, 30 Years of Billiards, Chapter 1. I stand upon a chair and make some experiments with a cue. My father was a barber. Early in the 1890s, he rented the ground floor of a little brick hotel at Cornwall Landing, 53 miles north of New York City, on the west bank of the Hudson. In half of it, he set up a lunchroom, and in the other half, with a wooden partition in between, a barber shop. My mother took charge of the lunchroom, serving home-cooked meals to hungry railroad men, barge hands, and miscellaneous travelers, while my father bossed at the shop. It was more than a barber shop. It was the social center of our little town. When the trains from the city had come and gone, Hack drivers and drummers used to gather there to warm their hands at the big iron stove and talk about the weather. Besides the stove and the two red plush barber chairs, the shop boasted a little battle-scarred old billiard table. I was born on October the 11th, 1887, and some of my earliest recollections are centered around that billiard table. I can remember standing beside the table watching the bright-colored balls rolling helter-skelter across the green cloth, bouncing off the cushions, colliding, disappearing suddenly, and unexpectedly with a plop in the pockets that yawned in the corners. At the age of five or six, I first got on friendly footing with the billiard table and its mysteries. My brother Frank, who was two years older and several inches taller than I, already was permitted to rack up the balls and retrieve them from the pockets. When a game had finished, he used to pick up a cue and walk around the table with a superior air, poking at the balls and making a great clatter, while I, standing on tiptoe with my nose just above the rail, watched the performance with awe and admiration. One day my father lifted me up on a chair, placed a cue in my hands, and arranged two balls near a corner pocket. He told me how to hold the cue so it would slide easily through the fingers of my left hand, how to aim at the first ball, and where to hit the second. Two or three hack drivers gathered around to watch the fun, while Frank, while Frank looked on with a critical eye. I lunged out bravely and missed it by a mile. Frank snickered. More than 30 years have passed, but I think I can still hear the echo of his chuckle at my first, first miscue. I tried it again, and again I missed. But the third time I was rewarded by seeing the object ball roll to the corner, wobble a bit uncertainly, and then disappear. That was the thrill that comes once in a lifetime. After that, it wasn't long before I was marching around the table with Frank, matching him stroke for stroke in the pocket game. The table was much too high for me. There were only a few shots I could reach on tiptoe from the floor, 
so my grandfather Hoffman made a little wooden bench for me to stand on. But there were still some shots I could not reach, even from the bench. For those, I would climb up onto the table, lie at full length, with my heels up among the kerosene lamps that hung overhead. Carrying my wooden platform from one side of the table to the other, stretching my arms out at all angles, lying belly whopper on the table, I soon was on familiar terms with the old table and its mysteries. My stroke developed in a peculiar way because I was so short I had to hold my cue at the side of my head with my right hand. Consequently, my forearm and wrists did most of the work and the elevation of the cue was greater than if I had used the orthodox underarm swing from the shoulder. But that same but that sidearm stroke has been one of the most valuable assets of my billiard career. It has enabled me to put a greater degree of twist or English on the ball with a softer stroke than the ordinary method. In close po position play, too, it puts action on the ball with a very delicate touch. While my shortness of stature was a serious handicap in getting about the table, it was an advantage in another direction. With my head just barely projecting above the top of the table, my eyes were down on a level with the line of play. When I took aim across the table, I could measure the angle much more accurately than if my head had been in the normal position. In the winter, the billiard table was a playground for Frank and me. When school was out and our chores were done, we would hurry to the barbershop. To, the, to add to the natural rivalry between us, there was always a group of hack drivers, barbers, and traveling salesmen to spur us on. Sometimes the barbers were busy. Sometimes there was no drummers. But the hack drivers were always there. They could be depended on for advice, appreciation, and applause at all hours of the day and well into the night. How those old characters linger in my memory. Jim Lewis owned the village livery stable and drove one of his own hacks. He was the village fat man. He didn't play much of a game of billiards. In fact, he had difficulty getting close enough to the table to play at all. But he was a great matchmaker. He would put up ten cents or a quarter for Frank and me to play and then referee the game. Johnny Hall, another hack driver, was the best player in Cornwall. They called him 17-cent Johnny because on a certain occasion when he tried to get in a card game with the other drivers, they made him show his bankroll and all he could produce after exploring all of his pockets was 17 cents. Johnny would play both of us together and he would beat us easily at first, but we worked out a system that finally turned the tables on him. I would shoot first. Instead of trying to pocket any of the balls, I would wail into them with all my might, leaving them spread all over the table. Then Frank, shooting next, would pocket as many as he could and leave Johnny safe. We worked that same system against many other experts that came to town. By the time I was eight years old, we had conquered the champions of Newburgh and Poughkeepsie by our team play. Visiting drummers were our best customers, however, and the hack drivers took keen delight in steering them our way. 
If they saw a lonely salesman waiting around the station for his train, they would approach him something like this. Hey, stranger, do you play billiards? They have a table over at the commercial barber shop, and a couple of youngsters, eight or nine years old, that played the game quite well. Why don't you go over there and take them on? His curiosity aroused, the drummer would wander over to the barber shop, and the hack drivers would flock in after him to see the fun, to watch the fun. Frank would engineer the preliminaries, making a game, while I racked the balls. There was always a little diplomatic maneuvering before the encounter began. Then bang, the game was on. Manny, excuse me, many a salesman missed his train in trying to get beat by Frank and me at our own game. And many a dime went into our little tin banks as a result of these encounters. Up to this time, my father had regarded our playing as a mixed blessing. We were always underfoot in the barber shop, always clamoring around on the table when somebody else wanted to play. But on the other hand, we were attracting business to the shop and our skill with the queue was causing quite a bit of comment up and down the West Shore. Finally, in the spring of 1895, my father began to see financial possibilities in our talent. If we could clean up the home talent around Cornwall Landing and astonish the natives with our amazing shots, why not clean up the talent of Kingston, Albany, Syracuse, Buffalo, and indeed, why not astonish the world? We had some little handbills printed, and they said, Hoppy Brothers, the boy billiardists. And away we started. That is the end of chapter one. We will also include chapter two. Chapter two, uh, chapter two we tour the Bush League billiard rooms and learn something on life. My father made arrangements for Frank and me to play an exhibition at Kingston, New York in February 1895. That was our first engagement on a tour that was to take us through the New York State. My mother bade us a tearful farewell at the door and the hack drivers were out in force to give us a hilarious send-off at the station. We stopped in Newburgh to have our photograph taken each holding his private cue in his right hand with an ivory cue ball on his left. I can't recall a trace of stage fright as we stepped to the table at Kingston that night to play our first match in public. By this time, we were thoroughly at home at the billiard table, and we were keen to show our wares to the skeptical strangers up the Hudson. The first exhibition netted $10.00 enough to foot the hotel bill, pay our fares to Albany, and leave a small margin and leave a small margin in reserve. <clears throat> An old scrapbook records that we played Charles Hazen at Albany, Seth Hendricks at Troy, Frederick Doyle at Albion, Hannibal Jones at Middletown, Henry Clue at Rochester, and Charlie Simmons at Buffalo. Of these old-time players, I remember little. But on that first trip, two or three things made a very distinct impression on my young mind. My 
father was no longer the tolerant, easygoing parent of the Cor Cornwall Landing barbershop days. He took our playing a great deal more seriously now. He used to sit at the edge of the table during a match, watching every shot like a hawk. He would coach us in German, saying, Nein, nein, in a sharp whisper, if we chose the wrong shot. Nearly every miss brought a torrent of vigorous German swear, worms, swear words, of which Gotten Himmel and Dunder and Blitzen were the mildest. He was very strict and stern about our practice sessions, too. A capable player himself, he knew how every shot on the table should be executed, and he expected nothing short of perfection from us. Hour after, hour, after hour, chiefly in the mornings, he would have us at the table, drilling us in long cut shots, break shots, and cross-table banks. And more than once, when we were dull or slow, he would give us a sound boxing on the ears. Occasionally, we would strike a town where my father couldn't make a deal for an exhibition. Very well, if they wouldn't give us a chance to play in public, we'd find another way to make expenses. Frank and I would sit quietly by the wall in a strange billiard, strange billiard room where we were unknown, while my father would engage one of the local experts in a game. He could beat most of them. By and by, he would make some caustic comment. Where did you ever get the idea you could play pocket billiards, he would say. Well, I've got a nine-year-old boy there that can beat you. And if the stranger showed any belligerent signs, my father would arrange a game with Frank, and, for, and Frank would proceed to trim him. In our exhibition matches, my father would back us for very small amounts if the local players thought they had a chance. Sometimes we would lose, and then my father's moods were darkest. His stern lectures in German were greatly enjoyed by the spectators, but poor Frank, who received the major portion of the blame when we lost a game, took them very much to heart. When things were going well, when either of us would clean all 15 balls off the table, my father would pat us on the shoulder and say, Dat is gut, and good kind. We had a wide variety of opponent, opponents. I remember one man, a tall, dark, somber fellow, who wore spectacles, was determined who, who was determined to beat us. He mumbled to himself while he was shooting and tried various ways to distract our attention. He sat near the end of the table and whenever Frank or I would try a corner pocket shot, he would light a cigarette so the flare of the match would take our eye off the ball. Some of his friends, sitting around the table, joined with him in the little conspiracy, and every time we would try a difficult shot, a match would be struck somewhere around the ring of spectators to annoy, him, to annoy us. My father was furious. If we had lost that game, there might have been disastrous consequences but we pulled through by a narrow margin. Those dim, smoky rooms were not the most pleasant places in the world for two youngsters, not yet, yet ten years old, but Frank and I got a lot of fun out of it, and when we returned to Cornwall, we had great tales to tell our mother and the hack drivers about the conquests we had made up the river. 
my my recollection <laughs> sorry guys my recollection is that we made just a little more than expenses on that first trip in february march 1895 but my father had big ideas he was sure the public would be willing to pay generously to see his two youngsters perform if he could take us on a tour of the great cities that summer we practiced daily and perfected our strokes Still under our father's exacting eye, and early in the fall, he made a trip down the river to New York, to New York City. Back he ga- came in a day or two with big news. Maurice Daly, the former champion billiard player and owner of two big parlors in New York, had engaged us to play a series of exhibitions at his rooms in Brooklyn. At last, we were about to break into the big league. And that concludes chapter two of 30 year, Years of Billiards by Willie Hoppy. And now I can't talk. So just join us uh, next week, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for sticking around. And we will continue the book with chapter three right here on American Billiard Radio. Billiard Radio.